0: Brothers and sisters, something that fills your pastors' hearts with joy is seeing how each member of this assembly is made to feel loved and welcomed. It really feels like we're part of a family at New City, and that's for good reason. The Bible says that's exactly what we are. God has forgiven our rebellion against Him in the death of Jesus Christ and has adopted us as His children. Jesus is our brother. God is our Father. Which is why, that's why we call each other brothers and sisters. We recognize that theological reality. And our relationship tie to one another is closer than even DNA. We've been united together in Jesus Christ, through His Spirit, in an eternal union. That's astounding. I mean, even even the uh, indivisible, one-flesh union of marriage isn't eternal, is it? There are no husbands or wives in the new heaven and new earth. But every Christian on the planet is united with their brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. And because our Lord Jesus in His bloody cross has secured for us this adoption, this Family union. Therefore, all Christians are welcome and loved in the church. No past sins, sins repented of and forgiven in Christ, define any member of this assembly or is as to ever be held against them. To do so would be a denial of the grace of the gospel. The ground at Calvary's Hill is level. There is never cause to discriminate against a brother or sister in Christ, just as there is never cause to show special favor toward one Christian at the expense of another. Skin color, economic status, brains, beauty, education, past failures. That's how the world discriminates. Connected. That's the basis of the world's favoritism. But those are all, all mere incidentals which have no bearing whatsoever on Christian love. And so we wholeheartedly agree with and seek to follow what James writes in chapter 2 verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And if we are genuine disciples of Jesus Christ the one who has been exalted to the heavenly sphere of glory, and who one day will return to save and to judge, then we will not show favoritism. We will not make judgments based on incidental externals. Our Heavenly Father, He looks on the heart. God is impartial. Our Lord Jesus is impartial. And as His disciples, we imitate God in this respect. We, too, look at the heart, not externals. So, there we have it, folks. Here ended the lesson. Amen. Hey, Let's close down the bed. No. <laughs> We're still sinners living in a fallen world. And to our shame, this is easier said than done. Human beings are naturally easily impressed or easily put off by external things, aren't we? It's a bad habit. But when I do laundry, I wait until my dresser is basically empty, and every stitch of clothing I own is dirty. Which means I don't have any decent clothes left in which to bum around while everything is being cleaned, and so I resort to wearing the biggest loser ensemble you've ever seen, sweatpants with dried paint all over them, a ratty old t-shirt from my university days, and flip-flops. This is a source of tension in our marriage. <laughs> Jill is not impressed. And when I venture into the streets dressed like that, the people I meet treat me differently. Right? Uh, there's reluctance. There's caution. They're assessing me based on my clothing, by my external appearance. You know how it is. If we're dressed nicely, if we're put together somewhat, keen-shaven, people are more likely to make eye contact. We're more likely to get service with a smile. People stop us and ask for directions, or they ask, Hey buddy, can you take a picture of me and my kids? We elect you. Because people who look a certain way don't get asked to perform that service, do they? You may possess a vast estate on Billionaire's Row on Lake Joseph, but if you stroll down Bay Street dressed in... Paint, stained sweatpants, t shirt, and flip flops, you're going to be made to feel like an interloper, like someone who doesn't belong. And Christians must, must guard against that sort of attitude creeping into the local church. Christians can make judgments about other Christians in the place of God. Only we're not coming from a perspective of holy omniscience, knowing all things, right? We're judges with evil thoughts. Judges with evil thoughts motives. We're coming at things from a perspective that looks at superficial incidentals as being the very criteria for importance or honor. That's why we discriminate. That's why we show favoritism. And when this happens in the church, brothers and sisters, it's an attack on the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a violation of the perfect Law of liberty God has written on our hearts as we saw last week. It violates Jesus' kingdom law of love, the very centerpiece of the law of Christ. And if that's the sort of judgmental behavior a church indulges in, then that church, those people, are in danger of being judged by God. That local assembly is deceived about the reality of the relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And then in verse 2, James gives us an example of the discriminatory favoritism he's condemning in verse 1. In this case, it's economic discrimination. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? No matter what age we live in, the temptation to relate to wealth and poverty simply is always present. It's part of our fallen nature. Money money so easily becomes the ultimate standard, doesn't it? People fit into one of two categories in our minds, and we're happy to pigeonhole them. The haves and the have-nots. People either possess material wealth, or they do not. And so we're tempted to judge others, to judge ourselves, and to judge God's mercy, grace and love by those incidental, insignificant material standards, not spiritual, biblical standards. And that's evil, James says, it's evil. It puts the legitimacy of our faith and who we are as a church. On the line. Let's look at this scenario again. Let's let's insert ourselves into this New City. Verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting at 918 Bathurst, wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. I mean, wow, what what an opportunity that is to show both of these people. The leveling, the leveling power of the gospel, right? Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We're we're, going to demonstrate this, we're going to show this to your glory. This is a test sovereignly brought about by God to New City that we might display His glory. But, as we saw in chapter 1, into the same situation now comes temptation. The kind of temptation James warns us about in verse 3. This is where evil motivations can begin, where gospel denying discrimination can take root. Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, there are probably two ways to look at these people who are coming into the church. Commentators are divided. They're either visitors to the church just off the street, or they're new converts. It's probably the latter. They're new converts. These men are new believers, and the rich one, for obvious reasons, he's fawned over. While the poor Christian is treated with contempt. And this brings us to the first point in our bulletin. It's very blunt, on purpose, and it's easy to remember Discrimination in the church is wrong. Discrimination in the church is wrong. Now in one sense, any social liberal would also condemn discrimination or favoritism. Uh, people who deny God's very existence would be appalled by what James writes about in verse 3, wouldn't they? And that's, that's disgusting behavior. So, what about us? Why does the church condemn favoritism? and discrimination as evil. Why must believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ not show favoritism? Because as you read in verse 4, discrimination in the church means we have become judges with evil thoughts. That means consistently Christian conduct only comes from consistently Christian hearts and minds. If the heart's not there, if the mind's not there, there going to be that good conduct. And Christians who discriminate between one another for any reason, but in this case we're looking at economic reasons, betray their Christian inconsistency. There are some basic gospel connections which aren't being made, thus showing what their hearts and minds are really like. They become judges. Judges with evil thoughts. And this is a theme found throughout the book. Uh, you don't have to turn off the James four twelve. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you, to judge your neighbor? There is room in God's creation for only one lawgiver and one judge, and that's God Himself. So when we attempt to discern people's value or their worth based on external features, we're not only attempting in an infinitely arrogant presumption to usurp God's role as judge, but we're failing to love our neighbor by having evil judging thoughts about their worth. One of the mantras for having a successful career, and there's a lot of truth to this, is that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Let's just try a little social experiment, okay? Who here has their present job, their present position, because they knew someone? Someone had a connection and made an introduction for you. It's a lot of us. I remember On the night of my high school prom, my friend was, I wasn't a believer these days, right, but my friend was pulled over by the local cops, driving his dad's new Camaro. My friend was heavily intoxicated, I know that for a fact, because I was matching him drink for drink, and I was heavily intoxicated. I come from a small town, everyone knows everyone else, and what do you think were the first words out of the police officer's mouth when my friend rolled down his window in his dad's Camaro? Who's your father? Oh, he's the most important real estate developer in the town with figures in a hundred local pies. Uh, I'm not going to give you a breathalyzer test, son, but don't drive this car for 12 hours. And that's why the problem of discrimination and favoritism and cow to the rich is a perennial temptation for, for Christians. It's a tendency, basic to fallen human nature, to ingratiate ourselves with those who we stand, who we think stand to help us. It's a temptation to favor those we serve, who serve to profit we serve to profit from the very most, right? Uh, and who can profit us the most if not the rich? I mean, what good are the poor in that regard? How do we stand up from our close association with the poor? You see, we need to bring the gospel to bear on this situation. Discrimination in the church is wrong, it's evil. And in particular, discrimination against the poor is in contradiction to God's own values. God honors the poor and chooses them for salvation. What in the world do we think we're doing? Why are we thinking this way? Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him. Because God doesn't say, if, if you're this holy, then you'll make it into my salvation club. If, if you're this lovable, you will inherit my kingdom. If you're this rich, if you're this wise first, then I'll make you rich in faith. Have all your ducks in a row first, and then I'll love you, I'll save you. No. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, and the despised things. And the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. Salvation... Is all of grace. It's all unmerited favor lavished upon the undeserving, lavished upon the unlovable, lavished upon us at the expense of Jesus Christ. But the world we live in, as perceived by our sin damaged, reality perverting faculties, and we have our father Adam to thank for that as a consequence of his rebellion in the Garden of Eden passed down to his children, our natural sin warped perception of the world is a dissembling, misleading fabrication. And the temptation for the child of God is to live inconsistently, to buy into a satanic fabrication. A fabrication where the all-important criterion is evaluated in dollars and cents. But those are evil, evil thoughts. That just throws the Gospel right on its head. We're What's truly important in a fellow image-bearer were assizing their worth on a merely material scale, based on treasures that they've laid up for themselves on earth, not the treasures they've laid up in heaven. That's grotesque. Verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. God has given them a rich faith, a believing faith in the gospel of God's glorious Son. But by our judgmental discriminatory attitudes, we show what we really think about. It. For shame, we show what we believe is truly important in this life. And pastors. Leaders of local churches are perhaps more susceptible to this temptation than anyone else in the church. When a poor Christian walks through those doors, and then a rich Christian follows right behind them in their Armani suit or whatever, Satan tempts the leaders of local churches to relegate to the trash can of practical insignificance the radical new state of spiritual affairs that every child of God enjoys in their union with Jesus, rich in faith, sin-forgiven, filled with God's Spirit, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, a member of the family of God, an inheritor of Christ's eternal kingdom. That is supposed to be the criteria by which both people are about when they come to that door, rich and poor. But instead of that, an individual's worth is assessed by the amount of money they can give. Pastors can be prone to this. It's sad to say, but oftentimes, positions of leadership in the church are up for sale. It's true. Or if a rich Christian or a member of their family becomes entangled in sin that they won't repent of, church discipline can be compromised to keep the money coming out. It's sickening, it's evil, but it happens. God. Save us from that in the city. May he remove the leadership of this church from ministry before anything like that happens here. In the scattered church, James is writing to the poor Christians are being dishonored, while the rich are being flattered and pandered to. And James says that's evil. Believers in Jesus Christ must not allow that kind of discrimination and favoritism. It's non-Christian. Not only does it turn the Gospel on its head, there are serious, serious consequences for dishonouring the poor, which we'll come to in a second, uh, in in our second point. But first, verses 6 and 7. As you can see, verses 6b, the last half of it, the seventh, take the form of three parallel questions, each expecting a positive answer. At first blush, these questions appear to be suggesting a very sort of pragmatic, quid, quo, quo kind of ethic. It looks like James would be saying, Don't give any favor to the rich because they don't deserve it. They have mistreated you, and you would be foolish to repay such actions with kindness. It looks like he's saying that. He's not. James is not counseling the Christians not to be kind to these rich people. He's simply arguing that they should not give undue deference to them at the expense of the poor. <coughs> verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And and that's not rich Christians. It's the rich as a class. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? <coughs> and perhaps this verse is related to property disputes. Remember, James is writing to disperse Christian Jews. James is saying favoritism toward the rich betrays a fawning, servile mentality. It's the rich who are persecuting the Christian community in James' time. Are they not the ones, verse seven, who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So it's like you imagine sort of James holding his head and saying, Guys, why are you cowtowing to the rich? You're being treated terribly. You're being dragged into court by these same people who blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. So why are you heaping honor on the class who is oppressing and persecuting you at the expense of the poor? It's difficult to know precisely what's going on here, but it's something, I think, pretty close to that. But Christian, as you analyze your own heart in light of this text, how are you faring? Our Heavenly Father loves the poor. He honors the poor. He has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit his kingdom. Do you honor the poor? Are we in fact imitating our glorious Lord who does not look on externals but on the heart? Or are we more concerned with how our association with the rich can advance us in this world? And so we kowtow, we ingratiate. Are we contradicting God's own evaluation of the poor by our evil judging thoughts? As Christians, brothers and sisters, all of us need to ask have we bought into a satanic fabrication? Have we been duped? Are we living consistently obedient lives on this front? Are we willing to test ourselves by this passage and see if we're spiritually whole? Are we doers of the word? Or are we just merely listeners? So our second point. Discrimination is wrong because it violates the kingdom law of love for neighbour. Such people are in danger of being judged by God. They are deceived about the reality of their relationship with God. Alright, at this point in the sermon, I have a a favor to request of you. Uh, I want you to pray to God for grace. (laughs) To be able to concentrate very hard for the next 20 minutes. Uh, And God uses means. So if you have coffee with you, guzzle it right now down to its dregs. Get that caffeine coursing through your veins, people. James 2. James 2 is the most complex chapter in the entire book. And the next six verses are tight. James is exploring massive themes connecting both covenants. But I'd like to finish this next section up to verse 13, so we consider the doctrine of justification next week. But I need you to listen even more attentively now, near the halfway point, when we're all tired, because James gets pretty heavy there. But what he says is some of the most important teaching in the whole Bible. And I'm going to take this last point slow. We saw last week that Christian obedience is the mark, it's the evidence of spiritual wholeness. We saw last week that believers must be repenting of sin and humbly accepting the word God has planted in us. We must not deceive ourselves. Real Christians don't merely listen to the word. We what? We do what it says. And by obeying the word, we'll be blessed. We'll receive the crown of eternal life God has promised those who love him. Now just as he was in verses 1 through 7, James continues now in that same theme, he's still talking about Christian obedience. That's what chapter 2 is all about. Christians don't keep just those commands we find convenient, or that align with our own moral code. There's no such thing as a a buffet Christian, right? Someone who picks and chooses commands that they like and they don't like. And one of Jesus' commands that we're to obey, which in fact testifies to our spiritual wholeness through our obedience, is we love our neighbors as ourselves. Verse 8 If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Alright then, what is this royal law? Well, the royal law is the law connected with Jesus' inaugurated kingdom. The kingdom over which Jesus rules as royal king. Jesus mediates all of His Father's sovereignty over heaven and earth right now. Do you recall how back in, in James 1.25, James spoke of the perfect law that gives freedom? The Royal Law, I would argue, is the same thing. It's James' way referring to the sum total of God's commands for His people through His Royal Son. The Royal Law is the whole Law of God as interpreted and handed over to the Church in the teaching of Jesus and His Apostles. It's also called the Law of Christ. We touched on this last week, Galatians 6, 2, 1 Corinthians 9.20-21. And the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is the very centerpiece of the law of Christ. The royal law, the perfect law that gives freedom. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you would, I want us to turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. This is on page 1017. We read this before, a part of it, earlier in the service. Mark twelve 28. You're going to want this open on your laps. It's on page 1017. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? What he's asking here is, what's the heaviest law? Because first century rabbis distinguish between light and heavy laws. Thou shalt not kill... That was a heavy law. Not muzzling your ox as it treads out the grain. That was a light law. And Jesus himself makes a similar distinction in the relative importance of laws when he says in effect that matters having to do with justice and mercy take precedence over the code of tithing in Matthew 23.23. Or when he says that the law mandating the circumcision of a male child on the eighth day takes precedence over the Sabbath. John 7, 22-23. So you're being asked of all the commandments, which is the most important? Verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And then, at this point, Jesus quotes the Shema. Shema means, listen, hear, in Hebrew. And this is the closest thing Jews had to a creed. It's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4-5. through Pious Jews recited the Shema morning and evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, greater than these. <clears throat> now, the command to love our neighbor, which is what James is concerned with in chapter 2, verse 8, that's why we're getting into this, the command to love neighbor, that's, this command comes second in Jesus' evaluation of the heaviest laws of scripture. So before we get to it, we first need to understand the heaviest command, and what Jesus means by loving God. Because these two most important commands are connected. In fact, these two commands, brothers and sisters, are the center of Jesus' new covenant kingdom ethic. The first thing to notice is that the command to love God is set in the context of the oneness of the person of God. Look at verse 29, the Lord is one. And that's a confession of what's called monotheism. There is one God, and Jesus is saying one of the entailments of monotheism is this first and greatest commandment. So do you see, because, because God is one, because there's no, there are no competing gods sort of vying for human allegiance, because He is the God of all and rightfully commands the devotion of our whole being, because God is one then we're commanded to love the one God, verse 30, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now the heart, in biblical times, is very close to what we mean today by mind, uh, which means two of the four ways in which we're to love God is with our thinking. The first and the third, with all our heart, and with all our mind. The second and fourth way we love God, with all our soul, with all our strength, that focuses on intensity. Which means the Shema is commanding human beings to love the one God in the way that we think and with all the intensity of our being. What does that look like? What does it look like to love the one God in the way that we think? and with all the intensity of our being. What does that conjure up in your mind, Christian, as you sit there in your seat right now? Joining a celibate order of monks, perhaps? Learning Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew to better study the Scriptures? Going out in rags, hungry, because we give every cent we have to the poor? No. The Shema, Jesus is quoting, is located in the broader context Of knowing God's word, obeying God's word, and passing it on. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. This is on page 182. Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, And their children after them may fear the Lord your God, as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel! What this means, brothers and sisters, is that loving the one God cannot be divorced from fearing the one God and obeying him. If we really love God, then we'll obey him. Obedience to God and love for God work together. We can't have one without on the other. Which is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.3, This is love for God, to keep His commandments. And His commands are not burdensome. So members of New City, hear this. This means from now on, when we think about, or pray to, or sing to the Lord our God, I love you. That's just another way of saying... I know your word, Lord, and I obey it. I love you, the one God, with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and strength. But if we're not obeying what God has revealed to us in Scripture, then those words, I love you, Lord, that's just empty religious claptrap. Sure they sound pious, but those words have no meaning, we're deceiving ourselves. James would say, our religion is worthless. (coughs) Now although the scribe in Mark 12 asked only for the most important commandment, the heaviest commandment, Jesus stipulates not only the first, but the second heaviest law as well. Love your neighbor. As yourself, and that's the command that James picks up in chapter two, verse eight. And the Old Testament passage Jesus cites to the scribe is Leviticus nineteen eighteen: "Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. In that concluding clause, "I am the Lord" reminds us that in Scripture. The horizontal commitment to love our neighbor is grounded in a vertical reality. God exists, we owe him allegiance, and he has every right to command what conduct he expects from us. Love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Which means, Christian, it's impossible to be faithful to God and confess him as Lord while nurturing loveless, judgmental discrimination toward our neighbor. If that's the attitude of our heart, our religion is a sham. What James is saying in verse 8, then, might be paraphrased like this. If you really keep the royal law, the law of the dawning kingdom. The law which is according to scripture. Scripture, as it has been magnificently fulfilled in all that Christ has taught and effected, and that is rightly summarized in love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, verse 9, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So, love your neighbor You're doing right. Show favoritism. You're a law-breaking sinner. Oh, there's so much more at stake here than just being nice and courteous. Favoritism in the church violates the command of love, which is the very heart of Jesus' kingdom law. Jesus says in Matthew 22.40 of love for God, And love for neighbor, that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Think about that. Nothing in Scripture can cohere. Nothing in Scripture can be truly obeyed unless these two commands are observed love for God, love for neighbor. Without these two commandments, the Bible is sterile. If our religion is not characterized by love for God, and love for neighbor, then our religion is merely formal, no matter how orthodox our beliefs are. Therefore, the final conclusion James draws from this verse is just a matter of very strict logic. The leaders who show favoritism in the church stand convicted by the law as lawbreakers. They are directly disobeying a commandment of God. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You see, those sorts of warnings are necessary because Christians can sometimes feel that obedience to the heavy laws of God take priority over obedience to the lighter laws. Remember last week when we talked about Jerry Bridges and his respectable sins? If a professing believer, a professing Christian, can say, this command, is a great, important, non negotiable divine command. So I really, really need to strive to keep that one. But, but this other command, oh, that's just a little commandment. I can safely disregard that one. I, I can pretty much live a life of, of uh, unrepentant defiance in relation to that little sin. If a professing believer can say that, they're deceiving themselves big time. They're, they're to be playing are No, we're to be de- declaring war on the little sins as well as the big ones. Growth and obedience is to be the main business of our Christian life. And James failure at just one point renders the person guilty of breaking the whole thing. There's a unity to the law of Christ in God's mind. Verse 11 For he who said, You shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Friends, these commandments, this law of Christ we're to be obeying, is not just some moral text kind of floating around in space. This is our Creator God speaking to us. He has disclosed Himself to us. And if we view the law of Christ as a series of sort of like hermetically sealed individual commandments, then I suppose we could assume that disobedience to a particular commandment incur guilt for that commandment only, right? I mean, if I get pulled over for speeding, I'm not going to be charged with with murder and theft. It's just speeding. That's all I'm guilty of. But that's not how the law of God works. With God's law, the individual commandments are part of an indivisible whole. Why? Because they all reflect the will of the one lawgiver and the one judge. To violate the law at any point is to disobey God Himself and to render that person guilty before Him. So if we show favoritism, we're lawbreakers. We are guilty of breaking the entire law, not just that one command, because we're sinning against the Holy God who gave us the command. We're sinning against the one God who said, I am the Lord. You This passage really helps clarify the nature of idolatry. Idolatry de-gods God. It replaces him with a substitute, which can only be a horrific insult to God. To cut ourselves off from God, who alone gives life, that can only mean death. One does not cut oneself off from only part of the blessing of God. And it's the same thing here. The breaking of what God commands is worse than the breach of one specific commandment It's defiance of God himself, so whatever the, the, the specific transgression, we become transgressors of the law, and so we declare ourselves to be in rebellion against God, and thus we declare ourselves to be idolaters. Therefore, verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here again, loved ones, is this constant theme that believers need to validate the reality of our religion by doing the word. Chapter 1, verse 22. If not, then we will face eschatological judgment, judgment without mercy. And James is talking to Christians here. James is telling Christians they will be judged on the last day by our faithful conformity to the the law of Christ. You see, God's gracious acceptance of us in His Son does not end our obligation to obey Him, but it does set our obedience on a new footing. As Doug Blue notes, no longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the law of God, we now obey, is the law that gives freedom. Our obedience is an obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge, that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin to the death and resurrection of His Son, and given us, in His Spirit, the power to obey His will. looked at this last week in great detail. To use James' own description, this law of freedom is an implanted word written on our hearts that has the power to save us. Therefore, first of all, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Christian, are you? Do you? Are you, in fact, speaking and acting as someone who is going to be judged? by the law of Christ? Have you made a terrible mistake? Have you been deceived into thinking that you can have Jesus as your Saviour somehow, but not your Lord, the Lord whom you obey? Not just in the heavy commandments, but the light ones too. The, those respectable sins, they you to be repented of. Know this, verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But James, as he's carried along by the Spirit, transforms that, in verse 13, into its opposite. Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. And that needs to serve as a warning. It's a real, legit warning to Christians. The Bible, the New Testament, the The discrimination and favoritism James readers are practicing between the rich and the poor in the church is antithetical to the mercy God commands of his people. God sets his face against that kind of behavior. And if any church or any individual continues on such a path, they will find judgment without mercy. But, James doesn't end the section on a negative note. He ends with words of hope. Hope, all of us, all of us discriminating, judgmental, imperfect, rebellious sinners need care. Mercy, he tells us, triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, believers will always deserve God's judgment. Our conformity to law, the royal law, will never be perfect. In fact, what God has set before us in the law of Christ is an impossible standard we can never hope to obey perfectly, not in this life. But our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence, will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us on that last day. And Jesus kept his own law perfectly, and we're in him, united to him. So you see, it's on the basis of Basis of our union with the one who perfectly fulfilled that law on our behalf, that we can have confidence of vindication on that final day. God has shown His adopted children mercy, and sending His Son to die for us for our sin, our rightful judgment for being law breakers. For we broke, we break the whole law. With even one fraction, that judgment is poured out on Jesus, our brother, on the cross, and we're counted free. God's mercy triumphs over our rightful judgment. And so we're called into God's family. We're united with Jesus through his Holy Spirit who now lives in us, who possesses us. God the Holy Spirit lives within us. And he unites us, all of us together, into one family. One family. A family where no brother, no sister is the favored child. Nor the black sheep of the family. Judged and discriminated against. We're all equal. No discrimination. No favoritism. That's the gospel reality. We've been called out as a church to live in this city. May God give us grace to do so. Amen.